I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday Book Show. Big books and bold ideas. It's good to have you listening. I want you and today's guest to listen closely to the following sound and see if you can figure out what we're hearing. Okay, that is not a bird, even though it sounds like one. And it's not the magnified sound of an insect. So listen again. I love that little trill at the end. Science journalist Ed Yong is out with a new book about the way animals sense the world and communicate with one another. And this is a book of marvels. We learn why jumping spiders have eight eyes and what it's like to let a manatee wrap his lips around your hand. We learn that vivid blue morpho butterflies, and I've seen them in the jungles of Costa Rica, have ears on their wings why an octopus's brain doesn't micromanage its arms, and why elephants are such quick learners. Ed Yong is an award-winning science journalist for The Atlantic, where he did some exceptional reporting on the pandemic. His new book is titled An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. And he's with us from Washington. And Ed, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again. Hi, thanks so much for having me again. Do you know what that sound was that we played in the introduction? Can you identify it? <laughs> I, I feel this is this is a, a tough thing to to uh, to have to perform on so early. In the um, if anybody can sure do it, Ed, you can. It's de- so it's definitely not an insect. It's or not is an, it insect? an insect. No, it is not. Um, hmm. You wrote a chapter about these creatures. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, is it a bat? Yeah. It's a bat. It's, it's, yeah, it's the Mexican free-tailed bat. Amazing. And I have to Phew. say, your chapter on bats, I, I just thought it was remarkable. Will you describe what you saw and learned when you went to Boise State University and you hung out and watched these bat researchers? What was it like? Oh, it was incredible. Um, they had bats, um, which they captured from the wild and housed over the summer in their lab. And they would fly them in these um, flight rooms where the bats would have chances to uh, hunt and kill moths. And you know, these rooms are completely dark. Um, the only reason we can see what's going on inside is that we have infrared cameras. But the bats are swooping around with just extraordinary skill in this pitch blackness and snatching moths out of the air. And they're doing this with a skill called echolocation. So they make high-pitched sounds um, that typically we can't hear. You you can only hear it as per this recording, either by reducing the pitch or by just homing on a part of the call. And they listen out for the echoes of that call, hitting objects around them and bouncing back at them. That's how they gauge distance to different targets, like a flying insect. This skill is is incredible on the face of it, but even more incredible in terms of the details. Um, you know, bats uh, at these high pitch frequencies are are basically screaming. And some of the calls could be essentially as loud as a jet engine, and it's just merciful that we can't actually hear them. And the bat might be making hundreds of these calls, like up to two hundred every second. Are they using these sounds, Ed, to tell other bats where they are and where they're headed, or or is the communication deeper than that? Right. So they, bats do also make social calls, but echolocation is different. The intended audience here is the bat itself. Think of it this way. Echolocation is a way of tricking a silent world into revealing itself. The, the bat makes a call and it's like someone saying Marco and it forces its surroundings to say Polo in return. And in that way, the bat can gauge distance from an object. So the, the time it takes for its call to bounce, to travel away from the bat and then to return to it tells it about how far away a target like a flying insect might be. And bats can are so sensitive to the timings of the calls and the echoes that they can gauge distances to other objects with like a, with a, fra- a fraction of a millimeter. 
They, they are truly incredibly precise, which is why a bat in complete darkness can perform incredible feats like plucking a spider off a web or catching an insect flying through the air. So I, I just have to mention what you wrote about the brown bat's forked sonar beam. I've never read about right. this. You, you describe this as one like horn pointing ahead and one horn pointing downward. First describe mm-hmm. what it looks like. If you would hold one of these little brown bats in front of you, would you be able to see, you know, whatever they're using for these sonar beams? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it's just the the mouth. It, it's, you know, you would probably see the bat opening its mouth. Um, you, you might be able to see it. it you know, I've, I've, when I've seen an echolocating bat up close, it kind of looks like it's snarling. You know, it's just opening its mm. mouth. You can see its teeth. But that's because these sounds are too high-pitched for us to hear. The bat, of course, can hear them just fine, and that's how it manages to um, navigate its way around the darkness. One of the things you note is that the zoologist who discovered bat sonar, Donald Griffin, is that his name? That's right, yeah. Yeah, warned scientists against applying too simplistic of explanations for animal senses. And here's something you you wrote about that. Other animals are sophisticated and that for all of our vaunted intelligence, it's very hard for us to understand other creatures or to resist the tendency to view their senses through our own. So you're saying that we we overcomplicate these perceptions, we simplify them. What are you saying there? Sometimes I think actually that we undercomplicate them. Um, so what Donald Griffin was arguing is that the limitations of our own senses and our own experiences create barriers that stop us from fully appreciating what other animals are doing. So when he first underst- when he first suggested that bats could um, navigate through sound. Other people just thought that it was preposterous. You know, echolocation sounded incredibly far-fetched. When when one of Griffin's colleagues, Robert Galambos, presented this idea at a conference, some you know scientist famously grabbed him by the shoulders and, and shook him, saying, "You can't possibly mean that." Um, but of course, they, they do mean that. And even Griffin himself, um, at first, when when he realised what bats were doing, didn't fully appreciate what they were really capable of, right? He thought that echolocation was a way of navigating around like large spaces. So a bat could Mm. fly around a dark cave and avoid like stalactites hanging down from the cave. He'd never imagined until he saw it happening with his own eyes that that their echolocation could be precise enough to snag a flying insect out of the air. But but it absolutely is. And, And I think all of this goes to show that we tend to think of science as this cold, clinical, purely objective pursuit of knowledge. And it, it really isn't. You know, it, it's a profoundly human endeavor and it's messy in that way. So, you know, a scientist's results, their, their way of seeing, you know, her way of understanding the world are profoundly influenced by the kinds of experiments she decides to do which are profoundly influenced by the kinds of questions that she even thinks about asking, which are also profoundly influenced by her imagination, and in this case, the limitations of her own senses. You know, I, I think you've, you've captured the wonder and the imagination, and I guess the awesomeness that some of these scientists, many of these scientists, approach their work with. I mean, I could tell when you were in these, like at the at Boise State watching the bats and some of the other places that you were, that you were experiencing the exhilaration that the scientist is experiencing. What was that? I guess that must have been part of the pleasure of reporting the book. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, thinking about the senses of other animals, it, it's such a joyful field. It, it's really full of wonder and Few people experience that more than the scientists who study these creatures. And that's partly why I did so much travel in the book, why I um, went to so many different laboratories and met people who, who do this kind of work. 
I think their joy and their their incredible reactions to the creatures that they study provide like a wonderful gateway for for other people, um, you know, who aren't so familiar with the senses of other animals. So the bats are a great example, right? A lot of people fear bats or dislike right, them. Right. But, you know, I think you appreciate them a lot more when you watch bat researchers watching bats and see them like cheering like excited sports fans when their their own bat like plucks a moth out of the air they're so enamored by these creatures and so impressed by them you can't help but then feel that same admiration i i have to admit bats you know as long as bats kind of stay out of out of my hair i have no problem with them i know how valuable they are I'm less probably forgiving about spiders, and they're often as maligned as bats. But mm-hmm. but your chapter on eyesight and the way a jumping spider's eyes work was just mind blowing. And you've given me what you've given me a completely new perspective. When I see spiders in the corner of the house, I'm no longer like kill that thing or get that thing out. I have a much you know I bring more curiosity to observing the way spiders work. So tell us a little bit about the jumping spider and why why you think it is that they have evolved to have eight eyes in all and eyes on the sides of their heads to give them full peripheral vision. Yeah, um, so I, I love spiders and I'm glad that you have that reaction now. Um, <laughs> just, you know, I, I know a lot of people hate spiders. If there's any kind of spider that people would, like it's probably a jumping spider and and because they have very large eyes they have sort of disproportionately large heads uh, large heads and large eyes which gives them an almost like childlike look like if you can get past the spideriness of it it's, they actually look quite cute in my opinion but you know they have these eight eyes that wrap around their heads they have two very large ones at the front and in the middle and then smaller ones on the edges now the way these eyes work uh, I, I think is extraordinary. For a start, like the two central eyes are extraordinarily sharp uh, in terms of their vision for a creature of that size. Like a jumping spider, despite being a few millimeters long, can probably see the moon in the night sky. Oh my um, gosh, wow. Right. It, I, I mean, I think that's already extraordinary. But there's also the fact that, you know, the, these animals... so these animals will track movement, right? So if you waggle a finger behind them, they will turn around and look at that finger. If you move the finger, they will move to follow you. And there's something very charming about that, right? We equate active eyes with active um, intelligences. And actually Mm -hmm. jumping spiders are tend to be much more intelligent than your average spider. But this movement tracking business, there's something very special about the way jumping spiders do it. So, In my field of vision, I see very sharply in the middle and everything off to the sides is a little blurry. It's sort of like that with the jumping spider, except it has um, separated different tasks to different eyes. So the big ones in the middle do sharp color vision. They're the ones that can see the moon. The ones on just on uh, on the sides of that, which are smaller, are what track movement. And if you block those secondary eyes... The main ones in the middle, and in fact, the whole spider, can no longer track moving objects, which is wild to me because, you know, tracking movement is something I do with the same eyes that I use to see color, which are the same eyes I use to read or to do all my tasks. And the idea that you could separate these tasks between different pairs of eyes, (laughs) I, I, I can... (laughs) <laughs> only just about imagine how that might work and i've seen it happen huh I, so that means I, I think we also tend to think of insects as having really really tiny brains mm-hmm. i mean this suggests that there is a more at least with eyesight a more kind of sophisticated pathways out of a spider's brains to its eyes doesn't it I think what it shows is that for spiders, for insects, um, and for a lot of other animals, having a large brain isn't isn't really a prerequisite for having extraordinary senses. Hmm. You know, a spider doesn't need to be doing like 
impressive calculations. It's fine that it doesn't need to be like reading Shakespeare in order to do extraordinary <laughs> things with its eyes or indeed with its other senses. You know, the, 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 uh, the vision is just part of it. So um, spiders are, are famous for building webs. A lot of species do that. And the web is an extension of the spider's senses. It is essentially like a piece of technology that the spider builds from its own body. The spider from its web can sense insects that are trapped by the silken strands. It can um, distinguish between the kinds of vibrations produced by different sizes of insect. Spider can even, spiders can sometimes even tune their webs to give them specific kinds of information. So they might, for example, build a web or tune a web that's, that tells it about smaller prey if it's hungry. Really, a spider web is a lot like my cell phone. It's a piece of technology that expands the range of my senses and clues me into information that my body cannot itself pick up. It works a lot through vibrations. And the main difference is that the spider has been building its web for millions of years before we developed our own tech. And it also pulls it out of itself. You know, I was thinking about your book the other day when I came out early in the morning and I walked through what, what looked to be a sizable spider web. And then I stopped for a minute and I thought, I wonder, I mean, I don't think that web was there the night before, but I wondered how ornate it was, how long it had taken the spider to build it, what they'd caught with it, had they abandoned it? Is that why when I kind of stopped and turned around, I didn't see mm -hmm, the spider mm -hmm. itself? So um, there could be several reasons for that. Um, sometimes the webs get abandoned. Like spiders will um, often like uh, break down and rebuild their webs on a daily basis. The spider might have been off on the side um, of like your door frame, for example, waiting for something to blunder into the web. There's mm -hmm. all kinds of reasons, right? But, but all of this speaks to the, the, the profound nature of the web. We, we think of it as a trap for insects, and it absolutely is that. But it is also an extension of the spider's senses. It, it is built from the spider, and it is of the spider. <laughs> I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Ed Yong is our guest today. And I'll bet you remember conversations with Ed about COVID and the pandemic. He's a science journalist for The Atlantic. But this hour, we are talking about his new book. And as, as I've said, it's a book of marvels. It's titled An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. We've talked about the way bats use echolocation. We're talking about the eight eyes that jumping spiders have. And this is just the beginning. So Ed is with us from Washington, D.C., while we're on eyesight, I want to mention the bay scallops, vivid blue eyes. I'm so happy you included a, a photograph in the book of this because I don't think I could have imagined it. I've never, I've seen plenty of scallops. I don't think I've ever noticed these eyes. They're this bright mm -hmm. azure blue, and what they run along the the very edge of mm -hmm. the scallops shell. Why? Yeah, I mean, they are really incredibly beautiful, aren't they? Um, like, they're, they're so different to what we think of when we think of scallops, which are either the ornate shell or, you know, the, that like lump of that puck shaped lump of flesh on, on your dinner plate. The eyes, <laughs> it's complicated. So each eye is pretty good, like in terms of like its resolution, its optics, it, it's not a bad eye for such a simple creature. So you might think then that the scallop with like hundreds of eyes along its flanks gets this like beautiful wraparound image of the world like what we see. And I think that's not the case. You know, that's, I think that's not the case because, um, as we've already mentioned a little bit, the, the animal's brain is incredibly simple. So here's what scientists who study, uh, scientists who study scallop vision um, suggested. Imagine the um, scallop is a security guard standing in front of a wall full of monitors. Each of the monitors is connected to different security camera. That's that's the eyes, right? So the the security the security guard has access to this wide range of state of the art cameras. But 
what the cameras feed into the monitors is not an image. It's maybe just a sign like yes or no. Can I sense some, can, have I detected anything or not? And rather than seeing with scenes like what we get, it seems like the scallops don't actually do that at all. But they, they, their eyes give them visual information, but not like a visual picture. Huh. And that's very, very difficult to imagine again, right? Like that's, yeah. that's such a different way of seeing than what we have. Um, you know, it's as if like, I don't have this movie that I, I can't see like my desk or my lamp or, or any of the things in this room. It, it's as if like my eyes just tell me there is something to your left that you should investigate, like stick your hands out, have a sniff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure we've got listeners who are wondering how scientists conduct the kinds of experiments that they learn the kind of information you're sharing. I mean, how would you ever be able to figure out what a a bay scallop can see out of all of these blue eyes? So uh, Daniel Spizer, the scientist who um, has done a lot of really interesting work with scallop vision recently, did this incredible experiment that he calls scallop TV, where he he literally placed scallops on little chairs <laughs> and put and played movies of like floating particles in front of them. The scallops are filter feeders, so that sort of represents the kind of thing a scallop might be interested in seeing. And what happened when he played those movies? The scallops would open their shells, and uh, to mm. to Spicer, that's basically scallop curiosity. That's the scallops seeing something interesting and wanting to explore further with their little um, tentacles that smell and and taste the world around them. How well do you think scientists understand the eyesight capability of some of the the fish and the other creatures that live in the deepest, deepest oceans? Because every now and then, you know, we'll read about the discovery or, of a fish that they thought was long gone or some squid that lives, you know, in the, in the darkest trenches of the ocean. But your, your book made me wonder how well we understand or science understands the way those creatures sense the world. Oh, I think very, very poorly. Um, the deep sea is one of the, you know, like most poorly um, understood ecosystems in the world, even though it is one of the very largest. And that's because it is very difficult to get down there. It is a dark and inhospitable world. And many of the things that we need to get down there, like submersibles that use headlamps, are you know, incompatible with the kind of living things that live down there. Like if you put a sub into the deep sea and uh, and it's got its lights on, it's going to blind and terrify and, and confuse a lot of the animals that have adapted to live in this world of total darkness. Mm-hmm. When you put down cameras that uh, don't produce bright lights and that, that are sort of a better fit for that environment, you tr- see truly incredible things. So a group of scientists that I talked to um, you know, shot footage of a giant squid off the Gulf of Mexico just a couple of years ago. So there, there are there are marvels there too. And you know, the giant squid is is a good example of, of one of these marvels because it is you know here is an animal that you know is almost mythological but is absolutely real, and it has the largest eye in the animal kingdom. So a giant squid's eye can be the size of a soccer ball. It's truly enormous. And what's, uh, what's amazing about it is not just that it is very big, but that it is so much bigger than the, uh, than the next biggest eye. You know, the, the eye of uh, a swordfish or the eye of a blue whale could probably fit inside the pupil of the eye of a giant squid. Hmm. It's that much bigger. So why is it that, is, why is it so excessively big? Well, if you do a ton of if you do like modeling studies to look at like what kinds of things an eye that big would be so much better at seeing it turns out there's really only one thing which is a large cloud of like pinprick lights down in the deep where there is no other light and that is probably what happens what what a, a sperm whale creates when it swims 
So sperm whales mm. are the main predators of giant squid. They're really the only thing that are, that are going to threaten an animal of that size and, and power. And as sperm whales swim in the, um, in the deep ocean, they will disturb other organisms around them that uh, will give off light, small flashes of their own light. And that seems to be the specific thing that giant squid have evolved to see with their soccer, soccer ball-sized eyes, so the sparkling outlines wow. of charging whales. So while we're talking about squids, we, we ought to come back to something I mentioned in the introduction, which is that an octopus's brain, I think you put, put it this way in the book, does not micromanage its arms. Right. And so I got an image of the arms kind of have a mind of their own mm-hmm. and they do things that the octopus's brain is not determining. Yep. Is that right? Uh, yeah, to an extent that is true. Um, you know, they, they think of it, think of it this way. Um, my brain is like uh, the conductor of an orchestra. Um, and, you know, it's, it's telling what uh, the different parts of my body, what to do. The, uh, with the octopus, it's a little similar, but everyone's playing jazz. Everyone's improvising and doing their own thing. And the brain has some say over it, but it doesn't, it doesn't have that total micromanaging control that, that like a human would do. An octopus's arms will take instructions from the brain, but can to an extent operate on their own. An octopus's arm is entirely capable of reaching out, grabbing an object, you know, pulling it back in without even bothering the brain at all. And, wow. and I think that's that's a really incredible concept, right? Like so the the whole point of an immense world is to talk about how every animal is trapped within its own sensory bubble. Right? It has its own particular way of experiencing the world. Octopus sort of have octopuses sort of have two of these bubbles, right? The, the head, uh, where the central brain resides, um, and is connected to the two eyes, which have pretty good vision. The arms um, live in a world of touch and taste. The suckers um, excel at both of those senses and likely combine them. So it's like the octopus is sort of these two halves to it. It, it has it has two different sensory worlds that it lives in. And that, you know, when I say that the arms are are, are partly independent, like they more of the octopus's neurons reside in the arms than in the head. Hmm. Um, wow. So it really does have this sort of this very distributed way of sensing, way of behaving that's very different to what we have. You know, it's interesting that an an creature like that that has those kinds of capabilities exists as you as you put it, its its bubble is water. You know, I was thinking how useful something like that would be for a, a creature that has more uh, is under threat from other prey animals, but lives outside of water. I mean, a lot of animals would like to have that kind of sophisticated capability in other parts of their bodies, wouldn't they? Are, are there any that do? Yeah, um, a, a lot do. I mean, um, our sense of touch is fully distributed. Right? It, uh, I can touch with a- any part of my skin. And so it, it's not true that the senses have to just be confined to the head. Like that's where a lot of our major sense organs are. It's the seat of um, mm-hmm. sight and hearing and taste and smell. But that doesn't have to be true for a lot of other creatures. So eyes, for example, can crop up all over the place. Um, as we've already talked about, scallops have eyes all along the edges of their shells. Um, starfish have eyes at the tips of their arms. Octopuses and, and cuttlefish don't have eyes all over their body, but they definitely have light-sensing cells all over their skin, which might contribute to their amazing abilities at camouflage and, and colour change. And then when you get into other senses, it, it becomes even weirder. So um, think about taste. Taste is something we do with our tongues. It is something do with, we do inside mm-hmm. our mouths because we are large animals and food is stuff that we put inside our mouth. If you are a very small animal, food can be something that you land on. And sure enough, a lot of insects taste with their feet. So um, a fly that lands on the uh, fruit that you're trying to eat is tasting it just by standing on it. 
catfish have taste buds all over their bodies, all over their skin. So a catfish swimming through the water is tasting as it goes, even if its mouth is completely closed. If you licked a catfish on its side, you would both be tasting each other at the same time. What else have I got for you? Uh, hearing, right? So um, <laughs> that, That's a lot. Okay, right. Um, hearing. Uh, we hear with two ears, they are on our heads. If you go into the insect world, ears can appear absolutely everywhere. There are insects with ears on their wings. I think you talked about butterflies in the in the intro to this. Some butterflies have... The blue morphos, right. It's some, some butterflies have ears on their wings. Uh, there are insect, uh, crickets, uh, some crickets and cages have ears on their legs. There are insects with ears on their abdomens. The praying mantis has a single like cyclopean ear in the middle of its chest. So ears, uh, much like eyes, uh, if you look at the rest of the animal kingdom, absolutely don't need to come in pairs and they don't need to be on the head. I, I thought this was interesting now that we're talking about animal hearing, because you write that animal hearing can drive the evolution of animal calls mm-hmm. and vice versa. Just as eyes define nature's palate, ears define its voices. Yeah. So give me an example of that. And then I have a few follow-up questions on that. Yeah, so sometimes we think of the senses as these like passive receptacles, right? Like I'm sitting here taking in sights and sounds and so on via my ears and my eyes and my ears. But that ignores the ways in which animals, uh, the senses of animals, like actively build the world around them. So a lot of uh, songs um, have evolved to um, best suit the ears of um, the the listeners. Um, So just by quirks of an animal's hearing, those little differences in, in, in the predilections of an animal's ears influences the kinds of songs that those creatures produce. You know, the example I talk about in the book is a kind of frog whose song is very is, is very specifically tuned to the hearing of the females of that same frog. But I can give you another example of this in 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 the field of vision that I think makes this um, makes this connection um, really really vivid. So a lot of flowers are pollinated by bees and other insects, right? And if you look at the colours of different flowers around the world and you ask what kind of eye would be best suited to telling apart all of these different colours, what you end up with is an eye that is almost identical to the eye of a bee. Like an eye um, with three kinds of colour sensing cells that are most sensitive to green, blue and ultraviolet. So you might think then that the bee's eye has evolved to see flowers really well. And it's actually the opposite way around because the bees came first and the flowers came later, which means that the colours of flowers have evolved to ideally tickle the eyes of insects. And I think that's just a beautiful um, discovery. You know, it, it really means that by... But the you know beauty in the world, even things that we find beautiful, um, we say it's in the eye of the beholder, and that's true. But it also arises because of that eye. So, so just to just to understand this, flowers at the beginning might have, I mean, over the course of millennia, flowers have become more and more fine-tuned in their colors to be the most attractive to bees that they can be because that's how they propagate yes um and it's you know and and in in a lot of different ways right so um bees can see ultraviolet light that we cannot see if you could see ultraviolet what you would notice is that is that a lot of flowers have very distinctive markings on them to draw the attention of insects so a sunflower isn't just like uh, flat yellow to an insect. It has an ultraviolet bullseye in the middle, and a lot of other uh, flowers have this too. And this is—it's not even just color. Flowers attract insects with uh, through a lot of other different kinds of sensory information. Smell is one of them, but also electric fields. 
um, you know, less than a decade ago, scientists realized that bees can sense the electric fields surrounding a flower. They could probably tell different kinds of flowers apart by the shapes of those fields. By the strength of those fields, they can probably tell which flowers have recently been visited by other insects and might be empty of nectar. So, you know, even for, for things that really do grab our attention, that, that, that attract our own senses, like flowers, we're missing so much of what the experience of a flower really is to the animals for whom that experience matters the most. You know, this reminds me, the experience of reading your book reminds me a little of reading um, Overstory, Mm -hmm. the novel about the way uh, trees communicate, Mm -hmm. Richard Powers' novel. And then and then taking that in and then reading further on on understanding tree communication and then it altered the experience of taking a a walk in a forest completely mm-hmm. and i've heard so many people share share that that kind of understanding i mean it, it, that came back to me again in reading your book that we think as humans we have a highly sophisticated you know perception of the world and that we're constantly taking in a lot of information you remind us of how much we miss we miss a lot we miss a A lot lot of it is not accessible to us we we miss a lot now you know it is true that we take in a lot of information a lot of our senses are really good like our eyes are incredibly sharp our fingertips are incredibly sensitive to touch um you know, we're doing well. We are picking up a lot, but we're missing a huge amount too. So we we can't see ultraviolet light, which actually most animals with vision can see, can um, detect. We are missing um, ultrasonic frequencies, high pitch noises of the kind that like a bat produces. We're missing low pitch frequencies of the kind that an elephant or a whale produces. We, we can't, we, we're missing a lot of smells out there of the kind that my dog can sense when we go for a walk. I can't detect the electric fields that living things give off that a bee can detect or a shark can detect. I can't detect the magnetic field of the planet except with a compass. A songbird, or like a, just a robin um, uh, or a pigeon um, or a sea turtle can detect that field just with their own bodies. And that's that's really the, the crux of this book, An, An Immense World. It points out that every creature is limited in its own way. Um, you know, we, we all have things that we can sense and we all have things that we cannot sense. And that is, I think, a wonderfully humbling idea. It, it really does feel like that our perception of the world is not only rich in detail, but also complete I'm not sitting here in my office, like marveling at the the holes in my vision or you know the gaps in my hearing. <laughs> it feels like I'm getting it all, but that's an illusion. Yeah, but you're not. I'm not. I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. only getting a thin sliver of of the fullness of reality, and I can only get the rest by thinking about what other animals are doing. I mean, could you? I'm sure you did spend some time imagining what it would have been like if if we had greater capabilities to hear the sounds that these bats are making and to see the ultraviolet that flowers are giving. I mean, I wonder if, if it would just be sense, sensory overload, whether this would be endurable. I mean, did we, yeah. do we have the kind of sensory radius, radius that we have because being assaulted with all this information would be mo- almost impossible to to process. Yeah, uh, a- absolutely. That's part of the reason why these sensory bubbles exist a- at all. Like, it would just be too much to be able to perceive all of it. Um, so there's three reasons, right? That firstly, it, it would be too much. I, I think it-, it would simply be unendurable. But also, we don't need it all. You know, animals are finely tuned by evolution to sense the kinds of information that they need to sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have very sharp eyes. A scalp does not have very sharp eyes, but the scalp isn't like reading books. You know, a, a scalp <laughs> isn't like um, wielding f- tools with precision. 
it's really just trying to find like bits of food moving around. It's trying to find like shelter in, in its, um, in its environment, sense that the shadow of a looming predator doesn't need a spectacular eyes for that. And so it doesn't have them. Evolution of uh, the senses are tuned to the needs of their owners and no animal needs to sense everything. And then the final part of this is that it's expensive to sense stuff. Um, You know, we, we kind of, we, we, Again, because the senses feel passive, right? We we think of we don't think of them as being like a drain on our resources, but they absolutely are. Even if we're not, even in in moments when we're quote unquote not actually detecting anything, like if I'm closing my eyes right now, right, I can't see anything. Mm-hmm. But it costs me energy to have eyes because all of that, um, all of the neurons, like the the nervous, the bits of my nervous system that allow me to see. All of those cells need to be held in a state of readiness so that when I actually am opening my eyes and looking at something, they can start signaling to the brain. So it's like it's like you have a bow and you're pulling the string of the bow and just holding it there so that and the, and the moment is right, you can loose the arrow. Mm-hmm. That's what our nervous systems have to do permanently so that we can do things like see and smell and hear and think. So all sensory systems, all the sense organs that we've talked about, all ears and eyes and noses and all the rest, it takes energy just to have them there at all times. And, you know, we we don't have infinite supplies of energy, which is why there are limitations, very real biological limitations to what we can sense. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Ed Yong. He is a science journalist. He writes for The Atlantic. You've probably read his his articles over the last three years about the pandemic. But we're talking about his new book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. He's joining us today from D.C. Uh, I, I want to come back to... Um, the way animals hear and then the way they communicate with each other. And, and maybe this has a little bit of an evolutionary question to it too. So here's something I've wondered about. We have an orange tabby cat in our house. And when I call him from somewhere in the house, he'll make a sound that has a question mark at the end. <laughs> like if I say, <laughs> kitty, where are you? You know, instead of just a regular meow, he'll answer with like a loud meow that's like, what do you want? I, yes, I know I'm projecting onto him, but, but I know he has kind of changed the way he communicates with us depending on what I'm, you know, what I'm asking for or mm-hmm. where he is. <laughs> I don't know. This sounds <laughs> dumb even as I say it, but I know I've seen this. I, and you have a dog, right? I do have a dog, yeah. So do you notice that your dog is evolving or, or changing the way he or she communicates with you depending on the intonation in your voice? I guess that's what I'm asking. So um, there's there's a couple of things here that are happening here. Like these, the animals that we, um, the animals that we have come to live with, you know, our, our domestic pets have evolved to you know, have relationships with humans, right? So dogs um, are incredibly empathetic and, you know, they, they are sensitive to our emotions and, and we are to, to theirs to an extent, right? And um, some of these changes are, are even physical. Like dogs have a little muscle in their eyes that give them like that little plaintive like eyebrow raise expression <laughs> that amazing. wolves don't have and yeah. right and i think that that helps them to communicate with us that helps them to have an empathetic reaction to us like i you know my 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 dog um his name is typo he's a corgi like if he flexes his eyebrows at me i like i'm i am gone i'm <laughs> you I am melt. melted i am, i am caving um, so, like the the sounds that animals make are, are part of this too, right? They're they're part of that like communicative package. And then, of course, creatures can learn, right? So, you know, my 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 dog and I have both learned um, how to live with each other, how to be sort of I, I think more sensitive to each other's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typo is 
more empathetic now than he was when he was a little puppy. You know, if I'm having a bad day, he's more likely to come up for a cuddle than he was when he was young. And then there is the stuff that we miss, right? There's the stuff that I think is is part of their world and that we misinterpret or that we don't have access to. So, you know, in in the book, I talk a lot about um, a dog's sense of smell. Right. Taiko has an incredible sense of smell, like all like all dogs do. And when we go for walks, he spends a lot of time sniffing the world around him. And I encourage him to do so. I think a lot of dog owners like pull their dogs away from things that they're trying to sniff. Um, you know, a lot of people see walks as just about exercise right. or you know, getting from point A it's to B. And yeah, right. And it is like okay, sure. Like sometimes when we're walking, we need to get somewhere, and and that's fine. But I think it is really, really important, um, and, and we've done this since he was a, since we first got him, that he should be allowed to, to sniff because that's a crucial part of his doghood. And people, you know, Alexander Horowitz, a, a dog cognition researcher who I've talked to, has done studies showing that, um, dogs, that dogs that sniff more are less anxious, are more optimistic. They're just, they're just happier. So yeah, I think that you know that there are there are ways in which animals and in which our pets um, and us have become closer, both like over the course of evolutionary history and you know over the course of our individual lives together. But there's always going to be a bit of a, a gap there, and if we don't recognize that and pay attention to it, we risk. In creating a, a slightly a worse experience for the creatures that we love mm-hmm. the most. So um, I was online and I was looking, I was watching videos of animal communication. Mm-hmm. And maybe you, you've seen this video. It's on YouTube and it's of two lynx encountering one another in the wilds mm-hmm. of Ontario. H- have you seen this, Ed? Uh, I think I know the sound, the, the video you're talking <laughs> about. Are you going to tell me that they make the most appalling noise that like well we're gonna hear it right okay great it's unbelievable and these two just just for our listeners and i i really recommend looking at this on youtube but you're gonna hear this these two links are you know maybe six feet apart at the max and they've come across each other and they're in full-throated communication so let's listen amazing honestly that is the sound that i made when i started working today <laughs> that's the sound i make when i write about the pandemic <laughs> oh, my oh my gosh i mean if you heard that and you didn't see it right let's say you're on a walk in the woods right you'd be scared out of your wits oh that God. sounds yeah. otherworldly yeah so, right, okay, what do I have to say about this? Um, so, so with the caveat that an immense world is not about communication, it, it's more about, it, it's about mm. sensing. What, what I say about this is that m- most people have no idea what most animals sound like most of the time. Right? Because if you think about <laughs> animal noises, what, okay, so we, we know the kinds of sounds that like, pet animals make like the, the ones that are most familiar to us and then in terms of animal noises right it's all like children's book stuff right it's, it's all old mcdonald's farm and you know the tiger goes roar and, and all of that that kind of thing but, but animals make a wide range of crazy noises all the time most of which we've never heard before and most of which would generate responses kind of like that links um you know there, there are loads of stories about this like um in in um, I think it's in Sausalito, um, in this like community of rich like houseboat owners, not houseboats, but you know ha- houses like on on the on the bay. Mm. There was a there was a period several decades ago where this community was just driven mad by this incredible like loud sound, like this deep <laughs> resonant um, sounds that would like move through the walls of their houses, like keep them up at nights. And people had like all kinds of 
crazy conspiracy theories about what was generating this. And what was generating it was a fish, a toadfish. Um, it's the co- wow. that noise is the courting sound of the male toadfish, and it is exceptionally loud and probably not what you think a fish would make. Um, but again, right? There's loads of examples of these, and there's loads of examples of other songs that that we can't even hear. So I write about some in the book. Um, there's there's a group of small insects called tree hoppers that. Most people probably haven't heard of, but I absolutely guarantee you that if you've been in any green space, like if you ever walked in a park or sat in the garden or, you know, um, uh, or, or anything like that, you will almost certainly have been next to a tree hopper at some point in your life. These insects sit on plants, they vibrate their abdomens, and they send um, vibrations moving along the stems and leaves of the plants on which they stand, which can then be picked up by other tree hoppers. So these seismic um, signals are part of how they communicate. And these are not sounds in the classical sense. They're not really moving through air. We cannot hear them. We can transform them into audible sounds by using little clip-on microphones and amplifiers. And when you do that, when you convert these seismic signals into sounds, what you hear are things that you are absolutely unlike what you imagine an insect might sound like. So when you played the bat sound at the start of this, I thought maybe you were playing a tree hopper song because they can sound like birds. <laughs> right? They uh-huh. can sound like musical instruments. They can sound like hooting monkeys or whirring machinery. They sound utterly alien, but often like really ethereal and haunting. And this connects to what we talked about earlier about how much we are missing in the world if you next time like you walk through a garden just think like the plants around you are are thrumming with the noises of insects um but delivered through a medium and in a way that we cannot hear Ed Young's new book is called An Immense World How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us you opened a completely new world to me, Ed. I love the book. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me.